In Christ alone, our hope is found. He is our light, our strength, our song. Lord, we have no hope outside of him. We have no reason to have joy outside of Jesus. We have no reason for boasting outside of him. Um, And as we come to you this morning as your people um, who are broken by the fall, broken by our own sin, um, as well as others who have sinned against us, We come to you, Lord, knowing that you hear us, knowing that you love us, knowing that you will take care of us. You're all we have. So, Lord, I pray for your people here today. I pray for those who may be here this morning and may not know you but are groping for you and longing for you. I pray, God, that you would meet us, um, that as Butch prayed, you know what it is that we need before we even ask, that your word tells us to not worry about the things that unbelievers worry about because you are our Heavenly Father, that you take care of sparrows, and surely you will take care of us, your people. Father, I pray for those among us who are hurting for whatever reasons, be it physical, spiritually, emotionally. I ask God that you would comfort them. I ask that you would be with them this morning, that you would draw near to them, draw near to their hearts, that they would see that you are a healer, that you are a comforter, that you are a physician but most of all, that you love them. Um, I pray for those among us who may be worrying about what tomorrow holds, who may be struggling to think through how they will provide food for their children or how they provide for their families or how they will get through even this day. I ask God that you would help them that you would help them to cast their anxieties upon you, their burdens upon you, um, that they would see Jesus truly as a good Savior. They don't have to turn to their devices. They don't have to turn to their wickedness for deliverance, but they can turn to a good God, the great shepherd. Father, I thank you for this time of worship that we can come together. Um, And I pray, Lord, that you would feed us, that you would take care of us, your people. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Psalm 73? I'm going to get this thing to work. As Butch mentioned before we started service, uh, we just had um, our third child on Wednesday. We 
got to take him home yesterday, and so we're excited about that, but I slept maybe two hours, three hours. So <laughs> if things don't make sense this morning, you know why. So, um, But I had a hard time getting here, just preparing for and not realizing we have a third child and thinking things were as, as business as usual, but then there's another kid around. So um, that shook things up. So messed my schedule up, but God is good. I'm here, and we're opening his word. All right, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is God's good word. Let me pray for us this morning and pray for our time. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. This word is about Jesus. Um, This word is about a God who saves sinners. 
this, is, this word is about a God who calls uh, us to himself and draws us to himself. Um, we thank you for this word, Lord. Uh, we thank you that it is sweet, that it is good for us to take and eat and meditate upon and process and apply to our lives. Jesus, we thank you that you've given us this psalm. We ask that your Holy Spirit uh, would work now, that your Holy Spirit would use uh, the words of a sinful, broken, and fallen man um, to speak truth, uh, not only to my heart, but to the hearts of your people, um, and that that truth would change us. That truth would teach us to think correctly, and not only that, but live accordingly. Father, I pray for us, your people. We need you to be here with us um, as we consider your word. We ask, God, that you would work mightily in the preaching of your word. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's a, a 1984 movie called Amadeus. Um, it's a story, and this story is fiction, by the way, so don't, don't think that this is real. It's a story of two composers. Uh, one is one you may know, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who is probably one of the most well-known composers. Um, and the story of another young, promising composer, um, Antonio Salieri. Um, the story begins with Salieri confessing before a priest that he has just killed Mozart, um, that he's just murdered him, and it was because he was envious of him. Um, and this story is really tracing what happens when these two people are, are together and they are really trying to become the world's next best composer. And Salieri feels that because he fears God because he worships God, that it's settled that he will be the best. That because he loves God so much that he will make music that will glorify God, that people will be wild about, and then that will draw them to God. But what happens is Mozart comes on the scene, and he starts making this great music, and Salieri realizes, wow, this, this is really good music. It, this gift that this man has could not have come from any other place but God. And so that causes him to have trouble. That causes him to have doubt. Because once he realizes that Mozart is not a believer, the fact that he's a pagan, that he does not care about God, that he's vulgar, that he does all types of things blatantly to offend Christians and believers, that it makes him wonder why in the world would God give this wicked man these great gifts? Why would God allow him, who doesn't fear him, to make music that is glorifying, that, to make music that is glorious? Why would God let this man make better music than him? After all, he is the one that's serving God. After all, he is the one that believes in God. So the storyline of the movie goes and it continues. And what ends up happening is Salieri 
really just renounces his belief in God because of this problem of the prosperity of the wicked. That the question the whole movie is asking that this guy is wrestling with is, why is it that God allows this wicked man to prosper? And indeed, as you think about your lives, as you think about your world, this is not something that's foreign to us, that we all think that at times. That whether or not you are a Christian or not a Christian, that there are times you look out, you look at the world, and you think to yourselves, like, why is that person doing so much better? That why is it that that person, that even though I know they hate God, why is it that they're in better health than me? Why is it that that person, even though I know that they hate God, that they renounce God, why is it that their children are obedient? Or why is it that their marriages are seem to be doing fine? Or why is it that they seem to have all the nice and best things, be it cars, be it popularity, be it fame, be it best jobs, whatever? Why is it that the wicked prosper? And this psalm is indeed you seeing that this is not something that's new to us as God's people, that this is not something that's new to this generation, but this is a timeless question that the people of God have wrestled with. That you look at this psalm, and this is what the psalmist is saying. This doesn't seem right. That God would allow people who don't love him to have any joy in life. That God would allow people who, who couldn't care less about him to have and experience the many blessings of life the many joys of life. And this psalmist is wrestling through this and going, what do I do with this? And as we consider this psalm, I think it's broken up into three really nice points um, for our purposes this morning. But the first point I think this psalm is teaching us is that that this thinking, why did the wicked prosper, um, is, it's, it's a common temptation for us all. So that's the first point. It's a temptation for us all. Secondly, uh, this psalm is showing us that there's an end to the prosperity of the wicked, so the end of it all. Um, And then finally, the refuge of us all. Um, So the first point, the temptation. Where does the temptation come in? That the psalmist begins by saying, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then he shows where his heart is in the matter. That he sees God, he compares himself to God, he knows God is good, and he looks at himself and says, but look at me, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. You may ask the question, why? And he explains, for I was envious of the arrogant, in verse 3, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now this language of slipping is a huge deal in the Bible, if you don't know. Um, it's usually meant to show a falling away spiritually. That when it talks about slipping and falling and stumbling, um, that reality was one that was impressed upon these believers because of the fact that they walked everywhere. They didn't drive their Hondas to worship up mountains. They walked 
of mountains to worship God, if you think about the psalm of ascent. Um, and oftentimes, these were dangerous walks. So sometimes you would fall and severely hurt yourself, maybe even kill yourself, on your way to worship God. And so when the, 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 the Bible readers or the Bible writers, when they write these things down, they're really speaking about the fact that this is a metaphor for falling away spiritually, for falling away from God. And he says, I had almost stumbled. I didn't do that, so I don't, I don't think I pounded the pulpit. Um, he says, I almost fell away. I almost stumbled from God. Why? Because I envied the prosperity of the wicked. And then he goes on to explain what caused that. That he says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. I know in our you know, weight-obsessed culture that seems bad, but that's a good thing. That when he says their bodies are fat and sleek, that means they're eating well. So don't think that's a bad thing. They're fat and sleek. They're not in troubles, trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. And so on and so forth. So much that the first 15 verses is about him looking at people who don't fear God. And it seems like they're doing fine. It seems like all is well with them. It seems like their lives are sweet. That the grass is pretty green on their side from where I'm standing. And he's looking at this and it's causing him turmoil. That God, that does does not make sense to me. That they would have all of these things going for them. And they don't, they don't love you. They don't fear you. And what it causes him to do is, well, what good is it in serving God if people who don't serve him have the best things? That it makes him question God's goodness. As he look out at the world and everybody's fine that they're making it pretty good without God. Now, for us, those might not be the things we think about or the things we value, but you can relate to what he's saying. But you can think about your friends, your family members, whoever it is, people who do not love God, and their parents are not suffering from cancer. You can think about people you know who you are close to and their children are not rebellious. You can think about people who do not love God and they're pretty popular. They're pretty self-sufficient. They seem to be making well. They seem to be doing well. Things are okay. Things are fine. That you know that tension, you know the struggle of looking out at others and going, what what good is it to serve God if these people who do not love God drive better cars than me, live in better homes than me, have better family stability than me? What good is it? And that question is really 
what he is wrestling with in these first few verses. That God, how could you let the wicked prosper? How could you let people who don't love you do well? How is it that they're better engineers than me? How is it that people have not walked out on them and loved them? And he goes on to talk about how it's the case that they even say in verse 11, how can God know and is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. That even if you think about, I mean, I'm going to use the example from just Disney movies. I'm going to be very honest here. The last time I cried was during the movie Lion King. Um, but the scene where Scar kills Mufasa, I mean, it just tore me up as a little boy. Um, but even in thinking about Disney movies, like there is something in us that goes, why in the world does this wicked lion get away for a time? Why is it that that happens? But there's a part of us that knows this and feels this, even though we may not be able to communicate it, that we feel like this at times. And it feels like God is not doing anything or God is just letting it happen. And this really is just to show us that the Bible really does speak to our condition, that the Bible really does meet us where we are. That the psalmist, as he thinks about this temptation, as he thinks about the pull of it, as he thinks about all the things that it seems that the wicked have, he realizes that he's made those things into idols. That he has made those things to be the main thing. What I mean by that is good health or eating well or them being violent or them seeming to do increasingly better than believers financially or whatever way. And he's made those things the main thing and he's realized that those things are not the main thing. That for whatever thing you would say or anything that you would say, okay, I have God. Now if God would just give me this, then things would be settled. I would really trust him. Okay, I am a believer, but if God would just give me good health, or if God would just heal my parents of whatever sickness, or God would just heal me of whatever sickness, or if God would just make my children obedient, or if God would just make people listen to me, or whatever it is, then I would really see that he's good. And really what that is, is idolatry. That you've made something that's not the main thing, the main thing. That God himself is not good enough for you. You need God plus something else before you can say, okay, he's really good to me. It's the reason why, you know, one theologian who is beloved in our circles in the PCA, John Calvin, would say about our hearts that they're, they're idol factories. That they make idols. And what he meant by that is that we tend to go from 
place to place, from idol to idol, saying, if God would just give me that, then I'd be content or I'd be happy. And I've seen that even in my own life. That as a teenager, you guys know it, that one of the things you want is, oh, I wish God would take my pimples away. Or I wish God would make me popular in school. I wish God would make people like me. And then as you grow older, it becomes something like, oh, I wish God would give me a good spouse. Or I wish God would give me kids. Or I wish God would give me a good house, a good job. And what that's showing you is that these are the things that become our idols. Because we say, if I don't have that, then things are not good. And what I want you to know is that God himself is good enough, that God himself is sufficient for all things. And so this psalmist is showing that this is a temptation, but he goes on to show us that in order to snap out of that thinking, that he says in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, and he's talking about how he had said, I've kept my hands pure in vanity, in vain, um, meaning I've done good for nothing. I've served God for nothing. What he's saying is, if I, if I would have said that, then I would have betrayed God's people. I would have betrayed his goodness to me. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And then he tries to understand, but when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And notice the place that he gets clarity in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And what he's saying is that this seemed wearisome to understand the prosperity of the wicked until he went into worship. That until he went into the presence of God and realized, wow, those things really are not the main thing. That God himself is the main thing. That my chief end as our confession says, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's not about that stuff. And it is not until he comes into the context of worship, besides God's people who worship the true and living God, that he realizes, oh yeah, this is what happens to the wicked. And he explains what happens to the wicked. In the following verses, that truly you set them in slippery places in verse 18. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrorists. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise, you despise them as phantoms. And this whole point is to say that there really is an end to all those things. And it's not meant to say, you know, to kind of be spiteful or venge, vengeful. And saying, well, they have those things, they're going to die. So they're going to die apart from God, and so I can rejoice in that. It's not about that. It's about him saying that those things are really fleeting. That they really are passing away. That they really don't last. That they really are not enough to satisfy our soul's deepest longings. No wonder that you see people who make millions, millions of dollars, like athletes or celebrities. It's no wonder that you see their marriages fall apart. It's no wonder that you see that they go crazy at times and and lose it at times. It's no wonder that all the things that we think, if I just had that, a little bit more money or whatever, a good car, good job, I'd be all right. All those things that we think would satisfy us that we see people who have all those things and they're still not happy. Why is that? 
because our hearts were made to worship God. And this psalmist is recognizing this. And he is saying, I missed the point. That the wicked are set on slippery places. That they will fall. And I can't think of a greater example or illustration than death. Because you can be the smartest person. You can be the most beautiful. You can be the most wealthy. But guess what? You're smart. You're richest. They won't save you. That all of us in this room, we will die. But unless Jesus comes back, we will pass away. And that is the greatest example of this. That for a time, people seem, seem like they're doing well. But when it comes to the final end, they're but dust. That we all will pass away. And what this psalmist is saying is that the wicked for a time prosper. But there is an end to that prosperity. There is an end to that passing glory. There is an end to all the things that you think are worth something and they are apart from God. I think about my own life. Um, everybody thinks that they will be in the prime of their life um, physically, and nothing has been more humbling to me um, than being on a college campus and you know playing sports with my students um, because it seems like they're so much faster than I remember, um, and it, it it always feels like I should be able to keep up, but um, you know my, I tell my body to do something and it doesn't respond. I don't know if y'all know that like. You say, go left, and it says no. You know, like, it doesn't move like, like I want it to move. And so it's just one of those things that I realized, wow, I really, I really thought I would be 21 forever. You know, I really thought I would be as flexible. I really thought that I would just spring up from a fall forever. And what God is showing me is that, no, you're going to get old, dude. Um, just hang in there. Um, and he's showing me that. Your health is not your God. It's not your Savior. I am. Um, and for us, that what we need to think about is that there is an end to the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist tells us, but then finally, he tells us, what is the refuge for us all? That what is, all, what is our only hope in all these things? And he goes on in verses 23 through the end um, of the psalm to explain what is that refuge? He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to, glor- to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and may- my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And all these blessings are blessings that he's communicating about being in fellowship with God. That is, because God is his God, and God has made him one of his people, that he has the blessings of walking with God, of knowing God's intimate, personal, individual care towards him. At the language he uses is that God holds his right hand, that God is walking alongside of him. 
through, throughout whatever life gives him, throughout whatever sufferings or trials or difficulties that he has, that God is right with him. That even though they may, it may seem that the wicked are prospering, God is saying, you have me. You have all you need. You don't need that. If you did, I would have given it to you. You have everything in me. And those blessings are communicated to us in and through Jesus. That if you are a believer this morning, that you can say boldly, as this psalmist could say, that God is with you. And even in a more intimate way than the psalmist could write. Because in light of the New Testament, God has placed his spirit in us. That in light of the coming of Christ, that God has placed his Holy Spirit in you so that he is always with you, that he is always walking with you. But it says you guide me with your counsel, and that's his word, that we have the words of God, that God t- speaks to us through his word, that he teaches us what is his will for our lives through his word, that he teaches us what is right and what is good and what is holy through his word, that the psalmist is saying, You give me the direction that I should walk in. And not only that, you walk with me in that direction. And for us as believers, this is your blessing. This is your benefit. This is your good, that God is with you. And if you don't know Christ this morning, I would ask that you would please talk to one of our leaders in our church one of our elders, our deacons, we would love to talk to you about it. I would love to talk to you about it. But this is the promise that God is making, that he really is a refuge. That even though you're chasing those things that seem like they will provide for you, provide consolation, comfort, security for you, that God is saying, I am your only comfort. I'm your only security. I'm your only hope. The psalmist continues in saying that all the things that he looks to will fail him, but not God. God is the strength of his portion, of his heart and his portion forever. And he ends by saying, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. And you put it in to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And again, what this is not saying is that you bash non-believers over the head with this and say, you're going to perish, you're going to die. But it's meant to make you mourn that the best that people get out of this life is a great job or a great car, and then they suffer hell, and they suffer God's judgment for all eternity. That the best that God gives them is a $50,000 car or a million-dollar house. That that is a sad story. That in light of all eternity, that that's your only hope. That's all you have. That in light of all eternity, you just built a corporation or you just had a good marriage or you had a great family who was well known 
If that's all that people have, that's a sad story. That's a pitiful story. And what God is saying to us this morning is that he is calling us all to himself. He is calling us to fear him. He is calling us to be content and delight in him. He's calling us to see that he is our only refuge, that he is our only hope. And so that's my prayer for myself as well as us here this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for your word. Um, We acknowledge that it is so hard to believe this. Uh, We acknowledge um, that at times um, we don't want to believe um, that you will do anything about the prosperity of the wicked. Uh, We acknowledge, Lord, that at times we grow bitter towards you because you have you haven't given us something that we thought was necessary or the main thing, um, and we thank you, Lord, that you don't give us over to our idols, um, that you break us um, to show us our need for you, and that you are our only hope. Uh, Lord, I pray for our hearts that they will long to know you, that they will long to be content uh, with you. Um, Not that they would despise good things because they are good things you give them, but that they wouldn't make those good things the main thing. Lord, help us to see Jesus and help us to remember that he is with us, um, that he loves us, that he holds us by his right hand. that he continues to walk with us and that he is our refuge. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.